Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lil Blastingame, and I am your host. Today we have Eileen. Eileen could have never imagined how her life would change in the course of one wintry night. Authorities confirmed that the plane her husband was piloting on his way home to celebrate Christmas with the family had crashed and he had not survived. With three young children and an entire lifetime ahead of her, Eileen's journey through the valleys of grief and the peaks of hope brought her to a place that is nothing short of miraculous. Author, speaker, yogi, and philanthropist Eileen Robertson Hamra shares her experiences in her first book, Time to Fly, available now through City Point Press and Simon & Schuster. Along the way, Eileen discovered that keeping promises to those that have left this world is a lifelong act, and honoring one love does not mean foregoing the freedom and love that is found in reopening your heart, trusting in new love, and expanding your definition of family. This was such a cool interview. Eileen is an incredible woman, and I could not even begin to fathom the experience she had of have her husband dying a couple days before Christmas in a plane crash with three young children. Eileen talks about recovery from from a loss, from a loss of a spouse, the grief that comes along with that, um, and grief while having young children, which I thought was really poignant. And she really gets into what it was like for her children and giving her children space to go through their grief. And I thought that, you know, there are probably a lot of people out there who experience grief as a family, even the loss of a loved one, a spouse, a parent, whether through divorce or through actual death, that could use a lot of the skills and tools and just the the relating that Eileen brings in her story. Her book, Time to Fly, is available uh, on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. It's an amazing, incredible book. Eileen is just so amazing. She also shares about her journey with IVF, which really is a topic that needs more discussion for people who are going through. I know that it is incredibly trying and lots of stories of hope and perseverance are needed to be out in the open. So I hope that you enjoy this interview with Eileen Robertson-Hamra and episode 79. Let's do this. Eileen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am reading your book and Time to Fly. Can you give me a little bit of background on what started you deciding to write this book? You've been through so much. What made you decide that you wanted to write about it? So that's kind of a long story, but... So the story in the book is uh, the story I lost my um, first husband in a plane crash on December 22nd, 2011, and had three young kids at the time, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, and a four-year-old. And it was three days before Christmas, you know, just straight up hell. 
But what was kind of odd or miraculous or whatever you want to say is there was these sort of like miraculous moments that would happen that happened right after. For example, I tell this story all the time is the day after Brian crashed, my my brother and my uh, dad actually had to go out to the plane. It was Christmas. So all the presents were in the plane, went out to the plane to get um, get what they could. And while they were at the airport, this gentleman had left a message that he wanted me to call him. And I was like, that's kind of weird. It was He was a funeral director. And I call him up and he's like, um, listen, I'm Al Cooner. I'm a pilot. I landed a half an hour before your husband was supposed to land. I heard him in the pattern and I want to take care of all the funeral expenses. And then we weren't particularly religious. I'm like, where am I going to have this thing? And he set me up with a caterer to have it in Baltimore at a business museum with an airplane hanging from the ceiling. (laughs) And I was like, I'm like, whoa, I didn't even know that museum existed. And so (laughs) was that triggering for you having an airplane in the ceiling? It just felt, it wasn't triggering. It's funny. You would think it might be triggering. um, And it was triggering. There's another story in the book that I share later on. It's triggering, But in the moment of trying to honor someone who's passed, suddenly it felt perfect because Brian was an entrepreneur. This was a business museum. He died definitely doing what he loved doing, which was flying. And it was, it was an accident and not, not his fault, but it was an accident. And it just was, so I would tell people these stories and there were other like sort of signs and weird things. They're like, oh, you got to write a book. So that's why I'm telling you the story. Sorry. So you got to write a book. You got to write a book. And I never dreamed of writing a book. I was not one of those kids that did really well in English. I'm like more of a math, <laughs> math oriented child. And, um, but I had heard it enough times. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll write a book. And so I started taking notes. I had people help me actually one of our mutual sort of distant friends, Julie Riesler, actually was one of the people that sort of supported me along the way. And I, then I was like, what am I writing? Like, why am I writing this? Like, I'm not a grief expert. I'm not a social worker. I just have my story. And then it finally dawned on me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That is the story that would make a difference. So I don't know. It took a really long time because it turned out, and I didn't know this at the time I was trying to write my book, I actually had to live more of my book to be able to write the story that wanted to be told in the book. So the story after the tragedy is, um, and what I share in the book is, is my healing is the journey through the grief and really opening up myself to loving again, which was difficult and hard and still, you know, something I struggle with and then opening up myself to new possibilities and actually having a baby at 46 years old. So I just turned 50 um, this past summer and I have a three-year-old. So, so that whole story is, is in the book. And, you know, when I was finished writing it and editing and I was like, Oh my God, this is the story I wanted to hear when I was in hell. I was like, who the hell made it out? I didn't actually care what their story was. I just wanted, I was like beacons of light, like who the hell can get off the freaking couch anyway. So that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and I love, I love it. And I want to, I want to, I want to rewind a bunch to 
get into some of the details, but I wanted to get an idea of like how this story, how you decided to write this story. So your husband, your first husband, Brian, you guys met when you were in your 20s. And was he the the big solar tech entrepreneur that he was when he passed? Was he that at 20? No, actually, he he had co-founded um, actually the first social network. So if you look actually at the trademarks, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or whatever his name is, takes credit for it. But actually, it was Brian Robertson and Warren Adams and Planet All. And that technology was sold actually to Amazon.com in 98. So if you like this, you'll like this was actually as a result of them acquiring his very first company at 25. So he was all, you know, super smart, kind of could see, see the future in in ways that I I can't, and most people can't. Um, And then he, um, after Planet All, he um, actually worked at a fintech, startup fintech, and then um, then he moved on to solar energy. But his, the last, I would say, eight years of his career was, I mean, he was only 38. <laughs> so a good chunk of his life was dedicated to renewable energy and something that he was always passionate about. But it, so in 2004, he co-founded Sun Edison. And then at the time of his death, he was the CEO of uh, Solar Aminex, actually, which is out near you in Southern, you're, are you in Southern California or Northern? I am Southern. Southern. Yeah. 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 In Seal Beach. So we lived out there in Huntington Beach. So yeah. Awesome. And, and how did you guys meet? What, what was your relationship start? So we met, it's kind of like so cliche and sounds a lot more romantic than it was, but we met on Martha's Vineyard. I was a single, I'd broken up. I moved to Boston for a boyfriend, broke up with him and I just needed to meet friends. So I found this group of people. Everybody was chipping money, chipping in money to rent a house for the summer. I was like, I don't care how much this costs. I need to meet friends. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So he was a member. I was a member. We actually, ne- we didn't meet until the end of the summer. We just never went down on the same weekends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I met him was- and, and it was, and how long after you guys met, did you guys end up getting married? It was two and a bit years. So we met in August of 98 and we got married December 31st, New Year's Eve of 2000. So a little over two years. But I knew pretty quick that he was, he wasn't my ideal because I was the older woman. I was three years older than him. So he wasn't what I thought. And he was shorter than me. So I was like, clearly. Right. Those two things. No, you're young and short. Like, yeah. no. And but he was like so funny, so funny and so like smart and yeah. And he, he turned on the charm and he, yeah, it worked. (laughs) So That's awesome. That's awesome. And so you guys got married New Year's Eve and how far in did you start having kids? We waited. So Melanie was born in April, 2003. So not like a lot, but we waited a couple of years and my clock was ticking, you know, it's like, in my early thirties thinking my clock was ticking, who knew that I could get pregnant again at 46. But, um, and I don't recommend anybody wait if they have the urge, but yeah, cause I'm very blessed in that regard. But yeah, we, we, um, yeah. So it's kind of a, so the, what happened was we got married and nine 11 hit right in, in the September after, we got married and Brian was in financial tech. He was, he was called, um, visible markets. And 
the investors were, you know, in the Twin Towers. So when that happened, he sold off the technology and we actually took a sabbatical and we moved to Mexico for a bit of time to sort of heal and reground and like, what's next? So I feel really blessed now because who knew how short our time was going to be, but I feel like we kind of retired for a year before we even had kids. So we actually had, yeah, it was, it was really, we had the opportunity to travel a little bit. And then we, when we came back to the United States, he went to business school and then um, that's where his solar uh, energy passion and renewable energy passion began. So, and I, my birth, (laughs) my mothering passion began. So we came back, I had, um, you know, Melanie year one of business school, Brooke year two of business school. Yeah. I had a couple, unfortunately had a couple of miscarriages, but then had Max. So the, you know, there's only four and a half years between the the three of them. So, wow. I'm impressed. I I have, uh, three and a half year old twin boys. So the idea of back to back pregnancies and that age range is just miraculous to me. <laughs> well, twin boys, you know, that's, that's <laughs> a lot. I have, I have one three year old boy right now. So I, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. A yeah. Lot. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a party. So what happened? Brian is flying this plane and was he, a, how, how long had he been a pilot for? So he got his pilot license um, when he was in business school. So in 2005, four or five, he, he got his license and he, he um, died in 2011. So he had it for five years. He was an avid flyer. He did all the things like he did commercial pilot license. He was, he did acrobatic training. He did all like, that was his in, like he just loved it. Yeah. He was passionate about it. So, yeah, and his, you know, it was his right engine failed a thousand feet in the air and there was nothing he could have done to recover. Yeah. So in terms of that with a Cessna, his right engine fails. From what I understand, there's two engines, but also there's all these backup systems. Does something like that, it's just like luck of the draw? What, I mean... So it's, so he was on landing. So his flaps were, it's, it's, if you want to know the, uh, so the technical piece is yes, technically you're supposed to be able to fly with one engine, right? but he had, um, with AAA approval, um, been modified the plan for short field landings. So the original props, instead of three propellers, there were four, his flaps were down, his gear was down. And so he was almost, I would say at stall speed, um, where you lose control if you stall out in the, in the sky when his engine failed. So he, it was basically like, it's like you, he was only going about 120 knots and then one engine fails. He, you know, the, you can read the flight report, but the, you know, everything that he was supposed to do, he did. And yeah, it just was not, and and up to that point, where were you? So you had three kids. The youngest was four. You're three days before Christmas. What are you doing when you get this information? When you get like, there's been a crash. Yeah. So I actually went to the airport to pick him up. Small, private, York County, tiny airport. So when you went to the airport, you had no idea the plane had crashed. It was two miles from the airport. It was literally on the landing pattern. And I had been following his flight on flight tracker. There's a, you can follow a flight. And he told me 
uh, he was supposed to land at 535. He told me, come get me at six. I'll button up the plane. I'll do the post-flight checklist, you know, and that way when you come to get me, I'm all in. I won't be distracted and you don't have to wait. So I was like, perfect. I'll, so I was following him and I, and it said two nautical miles, two nautical miles. And I kept refreshing and I was like, well, that's weird, but it's a, you know, it's a private airplane. It's not like, you know, I don't know who knows. I, I tried not to like flip out. And then on the way to the airport, I did get a call from the national transportation safety board. And they were like, can you please have, is, you know, can I please speak to Brian Roberts? And I was the you know backup phone call. And they're like, I'm his wife. Um, as soon as I get to the airport, I'll ask him to call you. And he had forgotten before. So I, I mean, I was nervous, but I wasn't like trying not to go there. And then when I pulled into the airport and his plane was not parked where I knew it should be parked. And then I ran into the airport and then they were like, I'm sorry, ma'am. We believe that plane has gone down. And it took another, they confirmed that it had crashed like pretty quickly there had been a helicopter that had been dispatched to try to save them. And the crew had come back and been asked to pull back because there was fuel on the ground. And so, yeah, then it took about an hour and a half before the police and coroner came. Yeah. So like straight up hell. Yeah. That was awful. And I was by myself when I got there and I quickly called my, my sister, my mom, who was back at the kit with the kids. And I said, tell dad to get here like now. So he did, he, you know, dropped everything and, came with me and waited. Yeah. But you had your, you had your family with you, um, or nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I I can't as a mother with young kid, I mean, the whole thing is just something I think, I don't, I don't know if you had this experience, but I, I would imagine that on your way there or before you were worried about, you know, oh, the groceries, I got to get to the grocery store. I got it. You know, like all the things that we worry about, all the different, you know, things that are annoying or like feel like a big deal because they genuinely in comparison to what's going on are a big deal. And then something, the thing happens, whatever that is, and nothing is a big deal. Nothing is anything. For sure. Yeah. How? (laughs) Clicks into perspective. No, I just like it. Yeah. It goes into focus really fast. And yeah, there's, and then at that point there was just really for me, one thing that was important, which was the kids and my family, like nothing, nothing else mattered. Yeah. In terms of that, how, so nothing uh, in terms of the nothing else mattered and things click into perspective, what does something like that do for a parent and parenting? Like how, how do you go from I mean, ob- obviously it completely destabilizes everything, but in the sense uh, on, on a more, you know, philosophical plane, what does your parenting change to? Do you start to think about how to parent differently in terms of what teaching your children what matters and, and, and what's a big deal? And like, did your parenting style or what you believed about the world and what you transmitted to them change? Yes. So it definitely changed. I think, you know, in the beginning it was a, it was a bit of survival and, you know, it's interesting because I sometimes describe it as like sometimes shock can in a weird way kind of look like being present. Like for me, that's, I was like, I know I was in shock and I know it was, I, I kind of consciously remember trying not to think about anything except for what was happening right there. 
because I was like, if I started to try to contemplate my life without him, I was like, I couldn't do it. And then if I started to remember memories and, oh my God, he just said that. And like, I was like, I'm, I just can't, I can't go those places right now. I'm not, I'm not, I just need to like not lose my shit, excuse me. But I'm like, I just can't right now. I need to just be here and where I am and sit on the couch. And I remember or sit wherever I was and just notice what was happening. And there was a lot of peace in that. I don't think it's like somewhere you could stay forever because there is life that you have to handle for sure. But I think it's like one of the strategies like, okay, what's happening now? And it was really interesting because in even observing the children in the beginning and like they were living life. Like Santa Claus was still coming. Right. <laughs> like who gives a shit about like in my world, like who cares about Santa Claus? But in their world, Santa Claus is still coming. So it was in a way, I was like, wow. I mean, part of part of that for them was their age, right? And part of that was their their capacity to even understand the long-term, you know, impact. Nope, they couldn't. They were kids, thank God. But yeah, so it was like, wow, they still want Santa Claus. And on Christmas morning, three days later, they were excited. Right. I mean, the rest of us wanted to puke. Right. We barely breathe. And we're like, yay, Santa brought you right. dreams. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, so there was, for me... Uh, from a parenting perspective, one component of it, just really trying to keep things normal, right? Like, okay, yeah, we're, when they wake up, Christmas presents will be under and we're going to have a hot cocoa and we're going to keep living life because it's very hard. I mean, it's really difficult to do. You, you And you do need to reach out to, <laughs> thank God for the community, right? Because you can barely move. But there was this like, yeah, I I need to, we do need to keep moving. We are still here. We are still living and they're children and they're, yeah. So yeah, that was the beginning. And, and in that, in talking to them about what matters, you know, I always, I always think about how I, there was a, there was one experience that just really, you know, slapped me in the face, which is nothing even remotely close to what to what you experienced, but I, I think back to it as a small, at small scale, which is I was standing at a really nice grocery store where everything is more expensive than it should be. And, and thinking to myself about how something about dry cleaning and, and how I was really pissed because something didn't go my way and this is too expensive. Meanwhile, I'm still buying it and, you know, all the things that are going on and, um, and th- you know, thinking about my problems essentially. And this elderly man comes, um, is in line behind me and, um, no, he would have been in line in front of me and he is checking out and he can't, he's trying to buy adult diapers and he can't afford them. And so he leaves, he, he, he leaves them there and he can't afford them by like dollars and side note, they're very expensive, but he, um, he can't afford them by like dollars and he leaves and, and I, you know, I end up buying them for him and talking to him and, um, and just realizing what kind of problems, like what, like 30 seconds prior what was going on in my head was actually a problem, was actually a big deal for me, was actually what I was thinking. Like I I cellularly felt it 
as strongly as anything else that was going on and how a shift in perspective about what's going on in the world it just like that that camera zooming out can change your whole life. I mean, I still, this was years ago and I still think about that moment because it was so, I I felt so small for thinking the way I had been 30 seconds prior or for worrying about what I had been. And just having that, your perspective change in life that quickly, I, I would feel like that everything would change because everything that matters to you would change nothing, nothing would have the same meaning anymore. And how could you, so how do you, how do you, as a parent, when everything has changed for you, but you have these three small kids and only a few things have changed for them. How do you step in and, and continue to parent them when suddenly everything means something different? And, and that that was something I was thinking about as it related to this, this experience was, not only do you have to show up, but their their reality hasn't changed. Their their realizations haven't changed as quickly. They still want Santa and hot cocoa and and all those things. And 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 you are the whole, nothing is the same for you. And I I just imagine that being a really intense experience and trying to mitigate like how to be a parent. Like how are you a parent? And and I think that could happen whether it was a plane crash or or anything. You lose a spouse and you have three young children or you have young children. How are you a parent now? How do you parent them so that you don't traumatize them because their world hasn't changed as much as yours? It's a good, it's a really great question. And <laughs> I've definitely made some mistakes in that department. But I because I, you know, when you were sharing, it's like for me to not invalidate their pain even when it's like the pain of, you know, something too expensive or right, their right. friend is, um, right. you know, their, their friend, you know, didn't text them back or something where I'm like, or it really gets me in trying to parent them appropriately. Like when they're fighting with their siblings. So like my, another story in the book and, and I share this is my sister passed away when I was 23 and it's really hard when I watch siblings fight because I'm like, you you know, like, and I've done it not too many times, but I'm like, I'll throw it out there. I'm like, you know, and, you know, my, um, Brian had a sister. I was like, you know, your aunt Julie and I would give anything to have our siblings back. Okay. And meanwhile, don't, I don't recommend that. It's not a good strategy. Right. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where you're just, you I I said that I said I didn't even have that happen. And I said I said to my kids the other day, you are going to be each other's protection for the rest of your life. Share your damn toys. You know, and it's like, but your perspective is and but when you feel something so intensely, how do you not say that to them? How do you not, you know, you your idea is to give them, you know, life lessons and knowledge. How do you, I would feel like, you know, the need to do that? How do you find that balance, particularly in the early years, right? Because it is probably years, not (laughs) months or days, in the early years of trying to find new normal of how to, like, did you have, did you seek outside guidance on what to say with the text fights? Or did you, like, how did you find your footing for how to be a parent in this new, new world you, you found yourself in? So all of the above. So I, de- I definitely reached out. I got myself a therapist. Interesting. I, I re- originally reached out because Max is 
grief in the beginning was, um, I want to say like, it's confusing. So, you know, like he's the four year old, he was four. Yeah. And it, he wasn't saying, Oh, I miss dad or I wish dad was here. He was, it was like, I'm going to kill myself because I can't have ice cream for breakfast. Or he would get so angry at, at, you know, circle time at preschool, you know, like if somebody would make fun of him, he would literally like stand up and start flipping chairs. And I was like, this is not normal Max behavior. So I originally reached out to a therapist to help me with um, him, Debbie Delacuesta, and she was amazing. And like all good therapists, she's like, you need to put your oxygen mask on first. So like self-care, I think, you know, like which you're a huge proponent of and all the ways there is to care for self. But it was like, I needed to make sure that I was in a good space. Cause if I was also not in a good space myself, I, I could, I couldn't even hear them. I would be reacting to them. So yeah, I learned. So I, yeah, I reached out for help. I talked to other people. I had lots of people, you know, I, the kids were all, all went to a Montessori school at the time, which, you know, they were amazing educators about child development. I think that's something that parents parenting as a parent now of a 17 year old and a three year old, like I'm about to be a parent in that next phase of like adulthood. I'm like, where's the books, right? Because what is normal? What is appropriate? What is, should I address? You know, it's like, it's always a mix. And if you have more than one, you're like, they're not all the same. So to constantly be questioning and wondering and researching and reaching out and getting assistance so that I do, uh, you know, I'm not trying to do this by myself. <laughs> um, that, that would not go well for anyone. <laughs> so, yes, I, I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then you, you find yourself in a situation where you are moving on to find love again. How long after Brian's passing did you meet? I think it's Mike, right? Yeah, it was, it was 18 months. So about a year and a half. Yeah. After, you know, that was interesting. I think it, you know, it's funny. People have all kinds of judgments and assessments on time. Is it too short? Is it too long? And I feel like it's really a journey for the individual, right? There's no timeline here. And in the beginning, after losing Brian, I actually really did actually want and believe that I would never meet anyone ever again. I actually was completely okay with that. I was like, I'm good. I'm lucky. I had this wonderful love. I have these amazing children. I can see him in them and I'm good. And then it probably was about nine, 10 months afterwards. I was like, wait a minute, I'm only 41. Um, I'm like, or I was about to be 42. And I was like, that's a really long life by myself. And at that point also, you know, living or just being a single parent was also, it's very hard. God bless all the single parents out there. It is, it is a lot. And so, yeah. So it was, then I was like, maybe, but I mean, I really wasn't ready, you know, for several mo- more months after I thought maybe I won't be alone for everyone, but it, it kind of, it, t- it, it took its own, um, its own time. And actually, someone introduced us. So that also, like, I don't think I was not ready to go start like, you know, traditional dating or, you know, getting online. I would not have done that. (laughs) I was not, you know, but 
I had mentioned to this person who was actually coaching me, business coaching me. And I was like, yeah, I'm starting to think about it. And he's like, oh, I have someone you should meet. And I was like, well, that's a trusted introduction. And he actually knew Brian too. So I was like, he knew Mike, he knew me, he knew Brian. I was like, okay. And it took a few more months. And then I was like, all right, go ahead and introduce us. So yeah, that's all it took. Thank God. But yeah, a lucky again. Yeah. And what was that like in terms of dating, you know, someone who's just gone through grief, you know, not an angry breakup, right? So that person is, is there a piece of that where, where Brian is still part of the relationship? Like, is that a thing? Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's funny. I feel, you know, it's so funny because like, you know, the first time Mike and I ever like made out after I was like, i started bawling crying i'm like the poor man you know <laughs> like, uh, because there was just so i mean and it wasn't because it was a bad experience but i'm yeah. like there was just so much so much energy there right like i i did actually feel and i share some of these weird synchronistic you know you can call them weird woo woo whatever i believe in them but like i actually totally believe that brian set me up with mike i could share more stories but and so there was a lot of like sort of comfort in knowing that this person was meant to be in my life. And I felt very comfortable. I didn't feel scared about that. But there was also this like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And um, yeah, so God bless Mike, man, because that's a lot. Can you imagine? Like, No, like, I can't. <laughs> no, I, I actually can't either. I was like, and you came back again. Yeah. I'm like, I'm really lucky. No, I, I mean, um, I think it's, but I, I mean, I can imagine from his perspective, like it's a completely reasonable, like I can absolutely put myself in your shoes. I can also, I can also see not wanting to take that on, you know, or get involved in that and not for any reason, not for any mean reasons, just that it would be really intense to be there for the kids and, and the person I'm with and, and all of that and all of the dynamics that, that would naturally be involved in that situation. Did he have kids of his own or had he been married before? No, he had been in different long-term relationships, but he had never gotten married before. He had never kind of taken the plunge. And so in some ways I feel like Good, good. He was probably a little bit naive to what it really was going to be like. (laughs) Um, But, but he, like, if you met Mike, anyone who knows Mike, he is incredibly patient and loving. Like last night, even he did this. I couldn't believe it. So one of our daughters got upset because we, we booked some flights during COVID and we're like, she's upset. She's like, you know, just the anxiety. I'm like, I get it. Except for stop yelling. Like, you know, like we're going, we're going to go to Mexico, like stop. And I go, if we have to change it, you know, whatever. And so I'm being like this, right. Stop yelling. I'm like, you're spoiled, right? Like the perspective where I, we booked a flight to Mexico and you're yelling at us. Cause we didn't clear it with you. We are still the parents. Okay. That's my life. Right. And my, my, you know, and Mike, he first was upset because he gave it to her for him first, but then he comes in and he, while she's here, she's like, you know, I'm sorry. I said that. I'm sorry that I reacted that way. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I get it that this is upsetting to you. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my 
like, <laughs> I'm like, thank God. And I really do think I like, thank God you're my partner because when I don't have that capacity, he always does. Like he, he pulls it. And I think that's his natural talent. So, or gift or he's cultivated. He also runs a big business. So I think he's had a lot of practice with a lot of people. And so he just, you know, you know, when I met him, there's a funny story. Like, you want to hear one other quick story? So, so this was very um, soon after we um, started dating probably like, I don't know, like a month. Right. And the first time you met him, it was like all picture perfect. Everybody was well-behaved. I don't know. Second or third visit, (laughs) you know, like shit's hitting the fan, right? It's Sunday night, Melanie comes down and um, she's, I think in sixth grade, she hasn't done her homework. It's like Sunday night at eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. And she's starting. Of course, she's all weekend said she has nothing to do. Right. And so I, she's my button pusher. Right. And I'm like, I'm frustrated. Meanwhile, it was actually Max had gotten a Lego set and my, Mike had said, Oh, I'll work on that Lego set with you. So he's sitting on the floor working on a Lego set. M- Melanie and I are starting to get into it. Cause it's, homework time. And Brooke comes down the steps and she's like crying because she's got an assignment due. And I'm like, I need to step out of here or I'm going to yell at Melanie. So I leave and I listen to Mike handle it all. He's like, so I'm sitting there listening. I was like, wow. He's like, all right, Max, you work on this little piece. I'll be right back. Brooke, when's your assignment due? Wednesday. Okay. What can you do tonight? Melanie, what do you need to do? And I was like, this is like weeks after meeting these kids. (laughs) And he is just management experience. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And and lovingly. And I was like, okay, he's a keeper. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Lock the doors. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. Don't screw up, Eileen. Don't be a bitch yet. (laughs) So funny. You come back, you're like, oh, I was going to do that, but glad to see you got it under control. (laughs) That's amazing. He was. Yeah, he was actually really good from the start, but it did take him something. Okay, like he was capable and I could see it, but it was, it was like people were saying just what you were saying, kind of like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that? Like, you're not, he's good looking and he's young, he's young, he's not that old. And why would you do that? Why would you pick her and that when you don't have to, right? And that's love. Yeah, that's yeah. Love. It is love. It is love. And uh, so I want to talk about, so I have had judgment about this. So I'm just going to talk about my judgment about this. All right. So when I got pregnant with the twins, I've, okay. So my whole, I'm a planner and I was very upset because my husband, my now husband, then boyfriend did not propose to me on my timeline. And therefore he put off my plan for having children. I wanted to have two kids before the time I was 30. And I ended up having twins a week after my 30th birthday. That's neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but when I got pregnant with the twins and I, I live in near in uh, Orange County and Newport Beach is, I think it's got to be the IVF capital of the world. And I was in all these twin mom group things. And I was like, by far the youngest, I was 29 and had gotten pregnant without any, any help with the twins. And I met these women who were having, who were trying to get pregnant using IVF in their mid forties. 
and at my at my OB, same thing. And they, I mean, it was complicated. It was t- sometimes very scary for them, um, all, all sorts of complications. And I remember going into my OB, who, who's you know Newport Beach, and and this is you know, and I said to her like, you know, I, I'm this is happening. I'm because ha- I had a really crazy. My kids were eight and a half and seven and a half pounds at birth. So I was, a I jump. saw those pictures. Yeah. I was like, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. So like just absolute insanity. So I kept saying like, am I going to be okay? And she said, she would say to me, I just delivered a 46 year old, you know, twin mom, first time mom, you know, high blood, you know, and she's like, you're fine. You know, she was, she, she's, you're fine. Don't even worry about it. And I would think to myself, and I would, you know, say something's like, why would you do that? Why would you want to be, you know, at 30 when I had the kids, I was so tired. I thought I'd die. And I really was like, oh, can you die of this? Cause I feel like I might die. And why would you do that? Like not, not even, not even, um, like nasty judgment, just like, I don't understand why at that point with those things. And especially since you already had three kids, what was it about having another baby and having a baby at 46 and having young kids? Like what was that drive and, and the things that would stop a person, you know, the tire, the, this, the, that, how did that play into it? What's the mindset? Cause I, I, I've never, I, I, I know that given the circumstances, I'm sure I would do the same thing that you did. I just don't, I just don't know what this, I just haven't been there. I haven't felt those feelings. So I'm curious what those feelings are. Yeah. I was very curious about those feelings too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, it's interesting because it did, did take something for me to, to go from like, why would I do that <laughs> <laughs> to actually wanting it? Right. And I think this is kind of, so you're a mom and you're, you're kind of in it right now, right? Like you're in this little phase and you 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 don't actually know that the physical tiredness that you're going to, it does ease up. Okay. Now the mentalness, you know, like the mental stress, because as they, I have two teenage girls, two are driving. I have a senior in college. We're dealing with, I literally have a preschooler and a senior in, in, um, high school. So we're dealing with college applications and PSATs and, and then I have a uh, middle school for me personally. <laughs> brutal. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, it's brutal. Like, honestly, I think if we just get Max through eighth grade and he's doing so much better than seventh grade, but it's only, it's only October. (laughs) So, um, anywho, but the physicalness does, you know, like having to make every meal and all of that. So, and I, I do love being a parent. I'm not one of those like, Oh, I I hated being pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. And my last, I, sh- I wish I did have twins because he was eleven five, like one baby. Yeah. Like I wish he would have been two and then he would have a sibling his age, but yeah, um, you're like, at least, <laughs> at least, yeah, at least I would have. Yeah. It's no, that is true. That could have been split that baby in two. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You still would have been in good shape. Yep. Yep. But, but I have to say, so my journey through that was, first of all, thinking it wasn't possible. And I think this is one of the things I, I do love to share about this story is the original, like, no way, no how was like, I actually didn't think it was possible. I was like, I thought I might die. And I didn't, I just, it was like, we've shut that ship down. Like right. it's, it's docked, like we're done. <laughs> and then, um, and then docked. this, <laughs> it's docked, we're done, you know it's not possible. And the same woman, Debbie Della Cuesta, 
I was, you know, trying to work through this because it was important to Mike. And, and I think if it wasn't important to Mike, it, we, it wouldn't have happened. But when I looked at it, I was like, and if I tables were turned and I was marrying him and he was the one with three kids and I had not had the experience of being, you know, a new mother, I would have wanted that. So I never for once like thought he shouldn't feel that way. But so I looked and she said, she said to me something like, I forget exactly her words, but it was something like maybe um, having a child together is what you need for your relationship. And I was like, what? (laughs) I really, yeah. I was like, she's like, and maybe what you think, you know, everything that you assume about it being possible or not possible is not the truth. And I was like, what? So, and that's like, how much am I paying you for this wackadoodle shit? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think our our relationship as your therapist is is over. (laughs) No, but the piece about, you know, maybe it's something that you need for your relationship. That one really, I sat on for a while and I kept looking and I'm like, what the hell did she mean? And, you know, I think with grief and I think when you, when you, a family is broken, right? There is no fixing it. There's no way. And there's no, there's nothing you can do to fix it. And a lot of times, and I, you know, I think about like, well, you know, it's about creating something new. And I was like, whoa. And then I was like, then I was like, oh my God, if we create, if we created this baby, it's everybody's baby. It's my baby. It's his baby. It's Melanie's baby, Brooke's baby, and Max's baby. It's all of our babies, right? It's their biological. Then I was like, whoa, that could be amazing. And then I was like, okay, I'm willing, right? I'm willing to explore. And then I kept going to the doctors and they're like, it's not likely, but it's not impossible. It's not likely, and you're going to be fine. And I'm lucky, like, you know, as far as I'm healthy, I, I do actually have a ton of energy. I did the Peloton before we, <laughs> before we did, like, I have a lot of energy and I'm healthy and I had four, three successful pregnancies. So like, I'm actually a good, I was actually a good candidate. Like we actually even thought, well, maybe we should use a surrogate and our doctor who's one of the top docs in Chicago. She's like, you actually qualified to be a surrogate. I was like, what? Right. She's like, you, your uterus is beautiful, whatever. Like, and you've had successful pregnancies and we let people have up to five C-sections. I was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Man, those, the standards here. (laughs) (laughs) I know really. Yeah. But, and I have to also say too, like, I also have teenagers at home, so I have built in. Yeah, Yeah. 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 For sure. And that possibility is like, as far as like people always, you talk to a lot of families that have that sort of long age, big, and they're like, it's great because kids have a different perspective of caring and family. So then I was in, and then we are lucky. I mean, it was straight up out of the miracle books, crazy, you know? Yeah. He's, he's pretty miraculous. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are 
always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. I have a lot of friends who have gone through the IVF journey and it is no joke. I mean, it is it is a real testament to the desire to have a child. And and so I was curious about that because I know there's a lot, you know, you 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 talk about your grief and and what that's like, you know, being a parent of grieving children while grieving and then moving into this new phase of finding love and oh this happens. Okay, now you embark on another really intense journey that that is is something that requires a lot of support for many many women. What was that like for you? Did you experience it as difficult as many, you know, women do? Yes. So, I think I'm a little bit pragmatic. So, I'm a little bit one of those people that I'm like, I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it like I'm going to give it my all. But I did actually create boundaries as far as like I'm not going to do this forever, right? Like I'm and I think I kind of had in my head like if you if I'm only going to try once, it's really not worth it because the likelihood of me getting pregnant the first time is not high. So like in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try at least three times. I'm going to, I'm going to assess how it feels, whatever I think. So from that perspective, I had some boundaries on it, but I also, but then I went all in, like, I'm like, I'm going all in, I'm doing exactly. Yeah. So I go, I'm going to go all in on this. And for people who don't know, will you just give us a little summary of, of what that looks like? Why will you give us a little summary of like why IVF is no cakewalk? Joe, no, it's no cakewalk. So you basically start, you're, you're pretty much on medication, hormone manipulating medication for if you do, if it's one month, then it's still six weeks or more, right? Like if you get lucky enough, you're in and get pregnant the first time, it's still manipulating your hormones artificially. So you start with suppressing your own system. So you let the, you know, the hormones uh, control and really like normally a woman when they're about to ovulate, they um, produce one egg and your estrogen increases. So what they do to try to stimulate you're mean, your two eggs, but yes, right. Exactly. You, and probably had you been tested, you would have noticed that you actually had double your, a traditional estrogen at the time, but you weren't taking your blood. So it should have been tested. <laughs> All right. Moving no, on. You, but so they basically give you, they call it follicle stimulating hormones. So they're trying to get as many eggs to mature And every, actually, this is something I didn't know. And a lot of people wouldn't know every month from the minute you're born, if you're a female, you have follicles come to the top of your ovaries to basically try to make a baby. And if you're pre 
pre-puberty, nothing happens because there's not no hormones to do that. But as soon as you hit puberty, the follicle but stimulating it still happens. It still happens. Yeah. It's like, that. they like march to the, it's so cute. Like <laughs> the little eggs come up and they're like, pick me, pick me. And then the, your body starts maturing an egg. And usually you pick one or two in your case, but when you're, and then it, your estrogen gets to a certain level and then you ovulate and then your body starts producing the hormone to basically allow you to um, fertilize that egg, but also have that egg burrow into your uterus so that you can keep pregnant. And then if it didn't work out, then your, those hormones drop and then you get your period. So it's kind of a, I'm not, I'm no doctor, but meanwhile, if you're in IVF, they are giving you so many follicle stimulating hormones so that as many of those follicles that had come to the surface become mature eggs. So women can have as few as three or four, all the way up to like 30. And so um, it's, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the younger you are, the more, typically the more you have, which is the higher the likelihood you can get pregnant. And this is um, traditional IVF, but there's a lot of different fertility things that people can try. So for me, being 46, my doctors were, well, I was 45 pretty much the whole year. Actually, my my retrieval for Zach was on my 46th birthday. Yeah. So, so basically I was 45 during this whole process of me trying to get pregnant and they were pretty impressed. I was like, they call it ovarian reserve. I was like, I actually was lucky. I had a good ovarian reserve and I was not things you didn't know about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee talk. All right. Bragging rights. My ovarian reserve. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do some icebreakers. What's something people don't know about you? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I had lots of for my age, lots of potential eggs, but the reality is the older you are, this is maybe a not, this is an analogy someone used with me one time. One time it's like, it's like an old car. It's like the egg is there, but it's like hard to start. Right. Like it's like hard to get that. Cause the energy, those eggs were there when you were born. So the energy that it's necessary to basically get that egg to split correctly, right, right, right. correctly. It's you like, don't know if this is like a 57 Chevy or like a, or a super, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <or laughs> super old. Okay. So, yeah. okay. So it's hard to get them to start and then they give yeah. you something to get yeah. it to so start. They, so they basically, you know, they simulate your eggs, they retrieve them and then they really try very hard to be delicate and, and inseminate them and, and get them to grow. So on the outside, yeah, on the outside in a in a petri dish. So, so like and retrieval. So like the downsides of this are you're taking lots of hormones that are uncomfortable, right? Some of which you give yourself shots in the stomach. Yep, you take a lot of shots. You go in for blood work to make sure that you're not overstimulated or if you need more stimulant. So that's a. It's like pretty much you're in the doctor's office every other day, and in the end, every day. So it's a lot of time and, you know, women who are working, who are going through this are there at five 30 in the morning, six o'clock in the morning. And it's really like, I think, you know, there's the physical piece of it, which is very taxing. I mean, you feel bloated, you can't exercise because, you know, it's risky. So light exercise you can, but it's just, but it's also something that you really, 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 really want, or otherwise you would not be doing this. For sure. So that I feel like, and then 
there's a lot of data, right? You're like, how many eggs do I have and how big are they? And like, you're constantly like wanting information and data to know that this one is working. Right, right, right. This cycle is working. And how many eggs did they get? How many eggs were fertilized? How many of those fertilized eggs look healthy? You know, if you do genetic testing, like how many to make it to genetic testing, how many of those are genetically normal? And then once you even get a genetically normal baby, if you're lucky, you actually have to, you know, sounds tacky, but you have to defrost it and inseminate it. And it has to still survive and live. And it's it's a really long, tenuous, hormonally driven process for something that you so desperately want. And so I think for me, and I do, and I say this, like, I am lucky. I, I did have kids, so I did want this, but I do feel like for women who, who, this is it, right? This is their shot. Like it is, it's even, the stakes are even higher. So I'm not pretending like my journey is anything like, you know, other people's journey, but it is, it is a journey and it is something that we really, really, really wanted. And so in my case, the third time we tried with my eggs, we, and you can also use donor eggs. So like there's a whole world of options for people being able to create their families. And so I actually did get pregnant, but it didn't last. My hormones weren't increasing. And I actually, cause I'm weird or whatever. I was like, I felt like good college try. Like Eileen, you got pregnant at 45 with your, with Mike, like good on you. Let's move, move on to donor eggs. So, and again, I'm kind of pragmatic. So I'm like, let's get her done. Cause I'm like, time is only ticking. So our fourth round of IVF actually was with donor eggs and it didn't work. And we were kind of surprised cause we thought that's pretty, pretty much the problem. Right. So we were about to do another round of donor eggs and I went in and one of the things you do is this baseline, right? When you find out how many follicles you have and it was October 8th, 8-8 and I had eight follicles on either ovary. And I was like, that's a lot. 16 is a lot, a lot of possibilities. And that was the biggest number I had ever had. So I was like, went to lunch with this kind of new friend and I was like, I don't know, should I try one more time? And she's like, and she, we were new friends. She's like, I think you should. So I pick up my phone. You're like, I yes, t- you, oh, yeah, you soon. Yeah, I was like, yeah. you're right. You're right. <laughs> Gotta love that. <laughs> so I text my doctor. I was like, I'm just going to see what she says. And she was the one that had said, you really should try donor eggs. Like you, you gave it a good shot. Like she was really good about sort of creating some guardrails for me to make sure I wasn't going off some hormonal, you know, side tangent of, you know, endless money and, and heartache. But she's like, you should do this. So when I texted her, she called me right back and she's like, I think it's reasonable. I was like, you do? She's like, I'll call it in. So she called in totally all the prescriptions. I left lunch. I went home. The cocktail. Yeah. I like literally start shooting myself up yep. in a different <laughs> yeah. way than, you yeah. know, your, most of the community does. And I, so, and then I was like, this is, I think this is important because then I felt like a fool. Okay. The whole time I'm like, that was stupid. That was impulsive. You're spending money. I was like, you shouldn't have done that. And yet I was like, but we're already here. We're already going down the path. Here we go. And I'm like, worst case scenario, it's like another month. 
money down the drain, emotional heartache, but what are you going to do now? Stop? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you And so, right. and my numbers weren't great, you know, and I used to hate it. hate it. And anyone who's been through IVF probably also hates this because people will say, only oh, you only need one. I was like, <laughs> screw that. I was like, I want 10. Like, I, what do you mean? And you only need one. We had one out of that 16 possibility. We had one egg that made it to genetic testing and that sack. Yeah. That's yeah. just wild. And so what, what point were you, did you know to celebrate, like what point were you comfortable celebrating or what, or was that not until birth? Until birth, probably like week 28. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like when you know he's going to be viable. viable. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was so crazy. And I, it, this is funny. Cause I was that whole, like the phone call that I got to find out we did have a genetic genetically normal baby, which was such a miracle in and of itself. And I was so excited. And then sheer panic. Cause you're like, Oh my God, you got to defrost it and like get it inside me and make it stay the whole time. And yeah. So yeah. But after probably, yeah. I mean, I, I was more nervous, but I, I think too, and I think a lot of your community probably feels this way too. It's like, if you've made it through what you've made it through, there was a huge piece of me that was like, you are not in control, Eileen. Like you can do everything you know to do. You can do it all right. Right. And it still may not work out. <laughs> and so just keep doing what you know to do. Keep going to the doctor's appointments, keep taking a chance, keep putting yourself out there. And also knowing like I've made it through hell. And if for some awful reason, this doesn't work out, I will make it through hell again. So, and there was also like a lot of trust, I think probably post, post Brian dying and just feeling again, like allowing myself to surrender a bit. Like I'm surrendering to the process. I'm not like going to think it's going to just happen because I actually had my tubes tied. I was so sure that I was never going to get pregnant after max that that's why I ended up having to do IVF. Oh, really? Even, yeah. I was like, so sure. This is the other thing, like I really love to share because it was like, I was so sure I never was going to do that or wanted to do that. <laughs> and then like, I can't even imagine world without Zach. Right. Like, so. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's, Everything I've been so sure of, I was wrong. Um, now they were, you know, 10 so far have been small-ish things, but everything I've said, I I will never do. I've ended up doing. And every time I judge someone the same, and now it's starting to happen within like 48 hours. Christiana can attest to this where like, I'll judge someone for something and within 48 hours, I'm like, I am such an idiot. Why did I do that? And I usually have to call them to tell them like, I judged you. Like I can't, I can't even, I'm not even good at it anymore, but it's, it's, you know, you just don't know. I mean, you, it, it, you just don't know. And I think I always say like, I, had way more figured out at 15 than I do now. As, as the older I get, the less the less I know. At 15, I was sure of a lot of things and it felt really good. Um and now I'm 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 only sure that I have no idea and it it is it is terrifying and also I think leaving that door open. I mean, you're right. Like you were so sure that, you know, you got your tube side and how could you not I mean, you're you're I think that's the thing is like you can set up this life 
based on all the things, right? You marry the guy you love, you know, he's got a great career. You, you have these three beautiful children together. They're, you know, so on and so on and so on. What, what kind of variables, you know, you, you think maybe someone will get sick or you, you, the airplane thing probably, even though in retrospect, you're like, yeah, that was a real risk that I probably put in the back of my mind because he was good and whatever. And he had all these, you know, um, checklists and things. And I, I've seen, you know, I, I, my uncle's a pilot, so I see all the rigmarole that they go through. It's no joke. And, but you just, I don't know, you can't plan, you can't connect the dots going forward. And so it's the ability to have that resilience, to know, know how to take care of yourself, to know what the formula for self-improvement is. And I think you, you kind of talked about it, putting your mask on first, that self-care piece. What do you do in those situations? Having those boundaries. What is what does all that look like? Seeking outside help, having a community. All of that stuff is the same stuff you do if you're struggling with an addiction or an eating disorder or, you know, grief or IVF or <laughs> insert whatever it is. Like it just it may be a different community. It may be a different specialist. It may be but the the formula is really the same and it it centers in my experience around community around having support that can support you when you cannot support yourself which is going to be up and down it's it's you know you'll be able to step in for them and so forth yeah it is crucial to 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 create those relationships where there's the mutual love and 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 support because yeah, I, I, who knows where I would be if I thought I had to do this by myself? Who knows where the kids would be if I did not have loving parents and siblings and extended family and Brian's family and Mike's family and girlfriends that, you know, never gave up. And it, and I think having that vulnerability of to like ask for help and, you know, uncle, like, um, I, I got to tag out. And like, there was a lot of guilt, I think you know, about, um, taking care of myself, like when the kids were, you know, kids were young and grieving. And and I was like, if I'm not, and I, I think this is true of parenting. It's like, if I'm not showing them what it looks like to take care of me, how will I ever expect them to take care of themselves? Right. It's like, I mean, there's a difference between taking care of myself and being selfish, right? Like it's all about me, but you know, I am, you know, going to yoga or taking a weekend with girlfriends or taking a transformational workshop or, you know, doing yoga teacher training or doing these things that nurtured me and fed me. And then I could come back and listen to their fighting or whatever, right. Or like be able to hear what they needed differently than, you know, so I think self-care and community, you know, my, but I would say my first community was your similar is actually in Huntington beach. So like I lived in, in the, in the uh, Harbor and I practiced yoga at core power at the plaza mm-hmm. and where the Beaker is. Uh, no, well, you know, um, what's the Huntington beach, um, shopping plaza where the whole foods is. Have you the, I haven't been said, back lately? Have you been back lately? Because no. it is a whole new world. There is a massive, massive, like, Galleria shopping center on PCH in Hunting, like downtown Huntington. And it is because we lived in Huntington for a while. And it is, I went, we went back there and it's been like, I mean, it's down the street for me. And it's been a couple of years since we lived there. We went back and 
I don't know where anything is anymore. Yeah, it's pretty wild. But yes, I do know where the core power at, at Whole Foods is. Yeah. Anyway, so, but that was my, those were my people, right? Like, and pre- for me practicing yoga, and I think kind of circling back to what I said in the beginning about being present and in the moment, it's like my, my daughter rock climbs now and rock climbing and, and similar to Brian's thing, it's like rock climbing, flying, yoga. It's like one of those you have to be things present. you have to be present or you will fall over on your mat <laughs> um, and it will hurt. Yeah. So, or it'll be embarrassing, one of the two. So like you really just are there and, and you're flowing and you're breathing. I think that's the other big mm-hmm. component of yoga. It's like there's a lot of an exercise in general, right? Like there's a lot of oxygen and, and breath and which is takes your nervous system into the parasympathetic nervous system. So for me, it was very healing. I didn't probably understand all the reasons why it was so healing. I then got trained to teach so I could understand because I was like, I got to know why that works because it does. And part of it is breath work. But yeah, so I practiced yoga and, you know, tried to eat really healthy. Um, My adrenaline was just like, in probably the first six months, like just still, you know, like high, high buzzing. So, um, just trying to find ways to calm, calm, you know, myself down. So what are some of the ways, you know, more granularly that you were able to help your children find, ways to self-soothe or self-care in those early days while also grieving like that almost like that uh, you know co co-presence so to speak co-grieving how how what are some of the ways that you did that that might be useful to somebody going through something similar losing a spouse and having young children i think especially in the beginning and even now i think it's really important to for the for the person to be remembered kind of always, you know, it, it can be highly energetically charged negatively or positively, like bringing up the person, but it was like having, you asked earlier, is like, is he part of your life? I'm like, he's absolutely a part of our lives. And so, you know, I, I make sure to remember, remind them of him. If like, I was like, cause he'll do stuff. That's just like him. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Or, you know, whatever. I'll just bring him up in conversation regularly, multiple times a week, probably daily. And it's been almost 10 years now, right? So, or nine years, sorry, nine years in December. And in the beginning, I think it was very healing for me, but also being able to like, allow them to talk about him and feel like he wasn't like, poof, like, someone who was in our life every day, you know, all of a sudden gone. I think it's important to keep that person's memory. We did um, actually a fun run in Huntington Beach. We did a beach cleanup and fun run that first Earth Day in April. And we did that for three years. And we, Brian's sister had a couple of events in Pennsylvania. We've done different sort of other legacy. There's a scholarship in his name. So like really being able to do some bigger things, and then also just really talking about him. And then also, I'm also thinking like, cause sometimes grief, right. Is sneaky and like, it looks like one thing, but it's really another thing. <laughs> and um, I think one of the hardest things with grief, right. Is a lot of times what they're dealing with is the fear of loving again or trusting again. 
And they were so young when it happened. And, you know, their first experience of loving someone significant, significant again was Mike, right? Like, how am I going to like open up my love for him or create the possibility of that? And then also like their trust in me. So like trust and love when you've lost somebody like that is like, it's just scary. So even though they might be having, you know, issues with friends, it's like, it doesn't look like grief related to your dad. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yet maybe pushing away friends really quickly if they don't, you know, measure up is, is a, is, is related to like, don't take a chance. Right. Or don't be vulnerable or whatever. So it's like, so would you talk to them about that? Yes. Yes. I mean, we, I also, they all have therapists over, you know, not all at the same time and not all whatever, but like, there's always one going to therapy. Yeah, for sure. At some point. Yeah. And I also think for someone who's has, children. And this is something I wouldn't have imagined, although it's totally logical. It's like grief moves through time and it's really obvious for kids, right? So the way Max was able to uh, to grieve at four is very different than nine, now 13. So being able to know that even though like everything seems calm right now, <laughs> something may come up that that you're not expecting and it's pro you know, it can be grief. It could be other things too, but a lot of times it's like, Oh, that was sneaky little grief, you know, wreaking some havoc on emotions in the house. And, but I do feel blessed to like be supportive. And I feel like I'm learning. You probably feel this way too. It's like, for me personally, it's like my kids teach me all the time. Oh yeah. Terrifying actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a little terrifying. You're like, I mean, just, I, I find they teach me, um, stuff about life, about what's important, about what is taught, what is trained and what, what is like what we're programmed for and what we're not, you know, things like that, where you're like, oh, that's not like, that's shame that we made up. Like that's not for that. That's not theirs. They don't have that. And, and then also what I find interesting, and you talked about this uh, a little bit with Brian um, and I'm seeing it is, um, but I see it in funny ways, which is like things that I, that really bothered me about my husband. I see in my kids. I'm like, Oh, it's genetic. Like they're babies. There's no, you know? And so I have, I suddenly have compassion for them. In ways that, and for him in ways that I didn't before, but where you just see like, oh, you know, it's, it's, this is genetic. Like the, these things are genetic. We pass these on. And I don't know why, but that gives me some sort of comfort, like to see the things, there's some sort of, I, 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 this is a really weird example, but there's the, I've struggled with an eating disorder my whole life, a compulsive eating my whole life. And one of my children definitely has it. And that that part doesn't give me comfort. But one thing I do see is that that gives me comfort is that, you know, that was, as I see him, I put so much energy and shame on myself for having this problem that was just my 
genetic natural response to stress and other people's genetic natural response to stress is other thing are you know there are other things for them and this was mine and i would n- not i don't think the th- things that i think about myself about my child i don't think oh you're la- you know any of the lazy or, or undisciplined or any of those things about my child cuz i see exactly what it is and how we create these stories about different things and just all, and I think our kids, you know, teach us about that and, and, and really teach us about, you know, one thing that I, I've long thought I'm, I'm the oldest of three girls and I've long thought, you know, if I were to lose, you know, I have two kids and, uh, I'd like to, you know, maybe have three and, and, but if I were to lose one and that was the only one that I had, I don't really know how I would go on from there. And so, you know, sometimes in, in situations like with Brian, you have people in your life that you love that you have to just figure out a way out for them. Because if it were just you, if it were just you and no one else, you might resort to drinking every day or whatever. Like it may look very different, but because you had to show up for other people, this responsibility and this connection and love and maybe even responsibility to Brian, knowing Brian, like Brian would be so pissed if I just, you know, cracked open the tequila and said, can't deal. I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah, Right. So you have this responsibility, like these, these, this community, this unity, these responsibility and relationships to other people that you have to show up and you have to figure it out. And I, I often feel that way about now, you know, with, I'm like, I have response. I can't just do what I did as a teenager. Like, okay, screw it. I'm going to go shoot dope. Like I can't do that. I have responsibilities to my family to find, to at least try to find other ways to be. And so I think, you know, there's having children or, or relationships, whatever that looks like for, for you is the thing that keeps us grounded as people in our life pass and move on or what, whatever that looks like. Yeah. I love, I love your sharing about your sons, like, cause it's like, it allows you to have compassion for yourself, right? Like you would never judge them for that. So like, why are we judging ourselves for that? And actually I think that it's interesting because that's one of the things actually, even in writing the book that, cause I hadn't really reflected. I did not do everything right. Right. Like I did just so we're clear, right. Like, um, well, good I because I was feeling super self-conscious. I was like, wow, she's just, no, no, <laughs> no, no. And I share in the book, but it's like, and it, that is important, right. To share authentically and share the struggle. And, and I'm not pretending I, I did make it out and I do have a great life. You made it out. Like we do have great lives and we struggled and we made a lot of, we do make mistakes. And but in, even in writing the book, I, I actually had even more compassion for myself. I was like, cause I was like, that was hard. You know, I, like sometimes I'm a little too buck up, like buck right. up, man. Right. It's time. Like yeah, totally. you ain't, we don't have time for tears right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Time to go crying to in baseball. Let's do this. Yeah. Right. right exactly. Right. It's the oh. pragmatist. The bleeding. I was like, that bleeding will stop. We'll yeah. stop that later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But So I think that isn't, that sometimes works, right? That's like, but sometimes temporarily (laughs) temporarily, and might get you through something, but it really, like, I think that's the other thing. Like when I think about my kids and being, having to show up or having them to teach me things. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful. They're, they're constantly, you know, 
allowing me to grow. And <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> allowing yeah, me, I, I giving we'll... me the space and time and lesson. <laughs> I always say to my husband, you provide me ample opportunities to grow <laughs> as a human. And I just want to thank you for that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when are our better moods? Yeah, yeah exactly. We, Thank you. Because that is, I think that is what life is for, right? Right. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's, so far, I don't. I'm still. I'm can't figure it out yet. But but so far, that seems to be the case. It's one perspective that works, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right for the moment. <laughs> for now. For the moment, this is working out. Yeah. When did yeah. your book come out? during COVID. So it was released actually on Earth Day this year. Awesome. Um, I think, yeah. The so that was... 20th? Is it April 20th? 21st. It's First. like, it's usually either the 21st or 22nd. Okay. Okay. So... That's awesome. And and uh, so you had, at smart, captive audience. Yeah. Nobody was going anywhere. Yeah. It's Although like, it was really, you know, it's funny because I was actually looking forward to seeing people. Actually, yeah. I was going to come out to Huntington Beach because... A lot of the people that were that beginning community, my yoga community, the soccer coach, the you know, the teachers, like all the people that like thank God for them, right? Like they were the buoys that let me live those first six months. And anyway, one day. One Where day, are you um, living now? We live in Chicago. We live okay. downtown Chicago. Yeah. So we did spend some of our pandemic time. Mike grew up in Missouri. So we live in the city, like right downtown. So when when everything kind of should hit the fan, we're like, whoa, That'd we need dope. some more space. We have a, yeah. we have like four kids, a dog, and a balcony. And, yeah. <laughs> and it was like still really crappy weather. It was like March, April. Like it was still snowing here in Chicago. <laughs> oh like, my God. Yeah. Spring break. We looked at the this forecast in, in Springfield, Missouri. We're like, Hey, it's going to be in the seventies. Like this is not our, you know, spring break dream, but let's go. And then we ended up staying there almost all summer. And then we came back and I'm happy to be back, but yeah. Yeah. I think all of us were like, let's get out of here. Yeah. Somewhere, anywhere, anywhere that you're anywhere, not. <laughs> anywhere that we're not, we were, everybody wanted to yeah. go and we wanted to go. Well, where can people, I know that you can buy your book Time to Fly on Amazon. Where um, where else can people find you and, and find your book? Yeah. So it's, I have a website. It's my name, Eileen Robertson Hamra. I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Please connect with me, Eileen R. Hamra. On some of those, but everything's on my face on my website. And my book is available anywhere books are sold. So if you want to go to your local bookstore, you probably have to order it, but it's available, you know, anywhere. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. And I love um hearing about your journey. And um, you know, earlier we were mentioning, you know, it's not it doesn't have the substance abuse aspect to it, but it definitely could have. And uh, <laughs> and uh, had it been had it been any of my guests, it would have. And uh, but I think it's just I, I actually love having the mix of different types of journeys and stories, and so much of the healing is the same. So thank you for being here, and I can't wait to uh, to finish the book. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's fun. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.